Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today we're joined by Art Coleman, one of the nation's foremost legal experts on the subject of affirmative action in higher education. Art takes us on a deep dive into the recent Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action in university admissions and, spoiler alert, he finds the SCOTUS decision lacking, to say the least. Give this episode a listen and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Tom Sackles, and I oversee research publications for EAB's Enrollment Services Division. Today, I have the great privilege of bringing you a conversation with Art Coleman, one of the nation's foremost legal experts on affirmative action in higher education. While I think most of you already know Art, I did want to share a few details from his bio, which will give you a feel for just how deep and lasting his commitment to diversity in higher education has been. Art is managing partner and co-founder of Education Council, LLC. And in that capacity, he provides policy, strategic, and legal counseling services to national nonprofit organizations, school districts, state agencies, and post-secondary institutions throughout the country. Particular areas of focus for art include student access, diversity, inclusion, expression, and success, faculty diversity, inclusion, and expression, and institutional accountability and accreditation. Art previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, where in the 1990s, he led the department's development of its Title VI policy on race-conscious financial aid. Art has authored amicus briefs for landmark affirmative action cases, including Gruder versus Bollinger, Gratz versus Bollinger, Fisher versus UT Austin, and the SFFA versus Harvard UNC case. Art was also instrumental in the establishment of the College Board's Access and Diversity Collaborative in 2004, which he has helped to lead ever since. Art's advocacy work additionally includes the development of a federal amicus strategy and numerous briefs on behalf of transgender students in federal court litigation throughout the United States. Art, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Liam Knox of Inside Higher Ed recently characterized the SCOTUS ruling as, quote, a vague and at times self-contradictory piece of jurisprudence that continues to frustrate colleges keen to maintain diversity without falling out of compliance, end quote. And I think that's just about an apt a description of, as any that I've seen. Um, but what do you think is behind the profound ambiguity in the court's ruling, Art? Uh, I actually look at the ruling um, as one of fundamental incoherence is the way um, I would characterize it. Um, I, I think his point on the, the notion that it's self-contradictory, there are just a number of points in the ruling that I think um, make that patently evident. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, in one paragraph, talks about the ostensible race blindness of the Constitution, and three paragraphs later talks about the fact that students experience discrimination on the basis of race. Um, interestingly, students for fair admission also requested that the court overrule 45 years of precedent, finding that the educational benefits of diversity were in fact compelling. 
And even though this court refused to do that, and then, in fact, it, it expressly said, you know, we are following precedent, um, they actually didn't. They eviscerated that precedent in particular with respect to the compelling interest point where for 45 years we've developed a body of research and evidence around institutional experience about the nature and benefits of diversity, which the court had affirmed in 2003 and again in 2016. Those very interests put forward by Harvard and UNC were rejected by this court in the SFFA decision. So it's an indication of the pretense of just continuing status quo when, in fact, I think the decision is um, anything but. Um, and so I think the um, I've joked with um, a number of colleagues. I, I teach a graduate course in enrollment management and the law. And if I had given anyone in my class nine months, as the chief justice had from the time of oral argument to decision to write this opinion, they might have gotten a D minus in my class. So I, I think there's a real fundamental um, incoherence and inconsistency with some very established principles. There's a failure to sort of recognize the value proposition of what were, in fact, findings of fact by the lower courts in both cases where the institutions prevailed. And so the, the court has really given us a kind of patchwork quilt of discrete points um, that we're now left to, to make sense of in terms of the implementation moving forward. And a lot of people were, I think, uh, depending on the guidance that was promised from the Department of Education and Department of Justice by way of follow-up, there was a sort of hope that that guidance would resolve some of the more serious uh, ambiguities. Um, what is your own take on that guidance? So um, let me say a couple of things about the guidance. So the Department of, of Justice and Department of Education issued guidance on August 14th of 2023, and then the Department of Education um, issued further guidance in September of 2023 um, regarding the, the sort of directionality suggested by the court's opinion. I think that the, the initial guidance in particular did a good job of synthesizing what is in essence the key takeaway from the court's opinion, um, where um, again, notwithstanding all of the critiques I would make of the decision in legal and constitutional analysis. I would also say in the same breath that the, much of the social media and press has overblown the actual practical impact of the court's opinion. Because even as it was saying, um, and this is the takeaway that the, the department distilled, I think, in its guidance, that the consideration of an applicant's racial status standing alone in an application is prohibited. You can consider facets of their experience, background, interest, and other qualities expressly associated with their race, which is permissible. So that's an exceptionally fine line, but for those admissions and other enrollment colleagues who are working fast and furious to figure out how to incorporate this decision into this year's cycle of of policy and practice, it really does fundamentally land into the bottom line of um, making sure that you're not valuing a student for the fact of their um, racial or ethnic identity. That is, the fact that a student may be a student of color can't enter the question. But that student may have individual life experiences and perspectives and passions that are highly relevant to the kind of, of interest you have as an institution 
and you can absolutely recognize and value those. And so we are dealing in a moment with an exceptionally fine line, um, but it is a fine line. I think the department did a good job of elevating for the field as it was talking more broadly about arenas in which this court did not address on issues of reach and pathways programs that institutions might provide. I would just say on that sort of broad landscape, I agree with the basic framework that the, the, the department outlined. What it didn't do, and it didn't purport to do this, but I think it's important to be very clear that you can't just um, judge in this area around non-discrimination law uh, a policy or practice just on the face of the policy. There are underlying legal issues around intent and impact of a policy uh, that require a more deep and analytical um, evaluation as a matter of sustaining those policies over time uh, from any legal challenge. And those are the kind of questions the, the department did not reach. Um, I was also personally disappointed to see that the department did not address what I think is one of the big questions um, of the field, the issue of the um, way this court opinion dealing with only an admissions question could implicate or um, affect the construction of legal risk with respect to financial aid and scholarships. Art, given the outsized media attention that the SCOTUS ruling has gotten, it's easy to forget how few schools nationally actually are selective enough for race-conscious admissions practices to be a practical necessity. Uh, the last time I checked, it was maybe 2% of colleges and universities that admitted fewer than 25% of applicants. Could you talk for a bit about what, if any, implications the Supreme Court ruling has for the other 98% of institutions? Yes. So I think it's really important to be clear on what the court opinion is limited to in its sort of technical construction and to recognize that those limits don't mean that it has no implication in any other context. And that's gonna vary by context, I would argue. So to be clear, the court didn't address financial aid and scholarships. It didn't address recruitment, outreach, or pathways programs. It didn't address employment issues. It was limited to the four corners of the admissions decision. And I've seen the argument by some to say, well, therefore the only implications of the court opinion are on the question of admissions. And I think that's just not a fair or balanced, constructive read of what we know about federal law. So let me just take Title VI, um, the, the law that one of the laws that was at issue in this case that applies to all recipients of federal funds, public or private. So virtually every institution in the country is subject to the prohibitions of Title VI. Title VI establishes a basic framework of non-discrimination for all programs, policies, and practices. And while this court's opinion addressed only admission, there are certain elements here that will bear on other uh, examples. And so um, just to go specifically to the one I elevated a minute ago on the question of financial aid and scholarships. No, the court said nothing about financial aid and scholarships. But at the same time, the court, as I mentioned a minute ago, basically eliminated that 45-year history around the kind of compelling interest that we had come to know that could justify the consideration of race in admissions under a long-standing Title VI standard. So with that fact, if I'm advancing race-conscious 
financial aid practices in the future, that is race status conscious financial aid practices in the future, I've got to have that compelling interest. Um, and the question would be, what's the compelling interest an institution is going to assert right now? Can you do it? Of course you can. But the, the, the question is, you don't have any clear legal precedent to attach that design to. And so it becomes a very risky strategy for the short term. I think there's a, um, there are ideas afoot about how we sort of build um, the research base and begin to then develop what could be new compelling interests that could uh, a court could sustain moving forward. But for the short term, we're li literally left with a blank slate of what we could point to as a clearly court-recognized compelling interest, and that's new terrain for us. And so um, that's my point on the fact that you, you can't just say this has nothing to do with financial aid and scholarships. It has everything to do with any kind of policy and practice that would have a race status consideration for which you would need some compelling interest. Yeah, and Art, I'm glad you took the discussion in that direction because one question I know I've been hearing a lot has been sort of what the implications are the of the ruling are beyond the kind of narrow specifics of it. Um, and according to some of the more thoughtful commentary I've seen on the SCOTUS ruling, the biggest threat it poses has less to do with those kind of specific prohibitions in it and more to do with colleges' legal fears leading them to oversteer. What advice would you give to enrollment leaders hoping to avoid that outcome? So I think this is obviously complex terrain um, and we're operating in a zone very clearly where we have certain very clear guidance on do nots and do's coming from the court. But a lot of this terrain is unsettled um, where the courts haven't addressed um, these issues, certainly in the wake of this decision. That's not foreign territory for lawyers, by the way. We operate in that zone every day. And so I think the key point to recognize as you think about institutional legal risk is first and foremost, it is not a one-dimensional exercise. I've never engaged with any institutional or organizational client on questions of policy design and legal risk where it isn't hasn't been posed in the context of what is the potential positive impact I'm going to get by the policy I'm evaluating. So you're always looking at the question of risk in light of that potential impact. And if I've got a potential policy design that maybe exposes me to some moderate or mid-level legal risk, and my benefit is I'll get two more students of color um, to advance my diversity interests, that might be a clear no because the benefit is not worth the risk. But if there is a design that is actually central to me achieving my core mission goals, I might well decide as an institution that I'm willing to sustain some moderate, moderate rational, and known legal risk because the impact of the policy, if I were to lose it, is too significant for me to. Um, not move forward. And so I think that important balance really makes this a less of an exercise that we all try, we, we tend to do because the simple is the best, right? We're looking for sort of the quick and easy answers. There are no easy answers. Um, we're looking for that, that quick shot 
that easy frame that says, of course, I can do this, not do that. It is very much a fact-driven exercise, in my experience, around on this policy, what is the mission-driven aim? What will it achieve? And if there are no design alternatives that might um, mitigate that legal risk while still advancing those goals, and I've really just got to address, do I do this or do I not do that? Um, then the question is, what do I lose if I don't do that? And I think it's a, it's a much more complex analysis than we often think. Art, in terms of those design alternatives that you mentioned, there's uh, definitely a pretty robust body of past work along those lines, I think, as your own work has amply demonstrated. There's a wide range of legally acceptable alternatives to interaction, which I think are, sorry, to affirmative action, and I think we can consider that good news. Um, but I also hear a lot of people talk about those alternatives as being a little overwhelming, people kind of struggling to choose between all these options that might be available to them. And a lot of people I talk to are sort of unsure where to begin when they're considering these kind of uh, legally more sound alternatives to um, affirmative action as it's been practiced. How would you recommend that enrollment leaders choose between the options? So, for example, is there a subset of approaches that are clearly more impactful and have broad applicability and that should therefore be a first order of business for most schools? So I, I would come at this from a couple of different directions. Um, back to the sort of notion that we're always looking for the silver bullet or the easy answer, and there are none, because everything here is so um, unbelievably contextually driven. A policy or practice that may work exceptionally well for institution could just flame out at another institution, given their geographic location, given their service area, or given their precise mission, which might really affect um, the impact of a policy design. So I would say a couple of things, and this is actually not real news to en enrollment leaders who, for whom this is part and parcel of their annual cycle. They enter the summer months thinking about the question of what does the data and the information we have about our experience in the past year tell us about what we need to do differently in the next year. So the summer is often a point of thoughtful reflection um, and um, analysis of key data points about where you hit your mark, where you didn't, what the implications are, and the like. I think in that context, this legal opinion and the implications of the legal opinion simply put an additional layer of analysis on top of that and probably some points of more urgency about how we are thinking with greater precision and greater focus about the investments and design around policies and practices to advance our diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. And so I would say a starting point there, again, no news to enrollment leaders, is really understanding your institutional context and that, that trajectory of data um, and evaluation over time that begins to tell you that story. But I also think this is a moment in time, as I have said in the past several months, not for retrenchment on DEI goals, but for leadership. And that, in my mind, most importantly includes some going back to first principles and literally 
stepping back away from all of the details and all the policy designs and asking, what kind of institution am I? What kind of institution do I want to be tied to my very specific mission goals? And in that context, taking a step back from the details of what fix do I need to make in admissions and looking more broadly at the range of the first point of outreach to the final dollar of financial aid as you go through the spectrum of enrollment management to think through, am I investing and am I designing in a way to maximize the kind of broad-based impact I am looking for? And so I think this moment, as challenging as it is for a number of institutions, is an opportunity to think through the broad landscape of investment and policy design and frankly, recalibrate in some ways because the landscape has materially shifted. We are in a very different world post June 29, 2023 than we were before. So some of those discrete policies and practices or those kinds of investments that may have had some um, even adverse implications on equity goals that you might have sustained before because of what you could do with race status conscious decision-making, I would argue call for a re-examination now because that landscape has changed. And so the calibration that you reached five months ago or five years ago might have changed. And I think we need to, um, as much as I know we are both um, exhausted um, and um, apprehensive about navigating the fine lines of the court opinion that I talked about earlier, I think it is a moment not to get so caught in the weeds that we don't step back and reflect on the strategic big picture um, as some of my enrollment colleagues uh, reminded me at a, at a meeting a couple of months ago, um, this is a marathon, not a sprint. There are absolutely things we need to do in the first leg of the race in the immediate wake of the court opinion. Um, but there's a lot we should be thinking about strategically and seeding for the coming months and years that follow. Art, as we're talking about strategy and big picture, there's a version of that perspective that corresponds to enrollment leaders' uh, sort of perspective, which is what I've very intentionally been trying to focus us on so far. Um, I was wondering, though, what, if any, what you would like uh, the cabinet to know? What would you like college presidents and provosts uh, to know about the SCOTUS ruling? I think the important point for me is I think about setting the stage for future action is, um, and we lawyers in particular get caught up in the what you can't do. Um, I'm going to stay focused on what you can do. Um, and that is both with respect to the existing Title VI and equal protection landscape as it existed before the SFFA decision that this court left untouched. So in particular, the kind of investment and creativity you can have on recruitment and outreach pathways and programs um, th that are in fact have some real racial intentionality behind them, but for which for years the courts have said those kinds of investments and designs don't even rise to the level of triggering a discrimination complaint because there's not that individual benefit to some students and not others in the design. That's one example. So I think you want to step back and make sure we're really thinking sort of broadly and strategically um, in that context. Um, and I would say that the, the value proposition of um, not relegating the, what does this decision mean to me, just to lawyers um, or just to a policy leader, 
but the value proposition of getting broad-based leadership at the table to reflect on the implications, to understand the bottom line of the court opinion, by the way, um, in, in all dimensions of your policy and practice, but to think strategically um, and use it as an opportunity, as I've suggested before, to maybe refresh around a set of mission aims that need to be thought through a little differently and perhaps more creatively in this moment where um, there is still a landscape where there is a lot we can continue to do, including that segment of activity and considering student experience and perspective that may be expressly tied to race, that the Chief Justice himself said, go forth and conquer. Um, we would be making a big mistake if we don't take him at his word on that. And Art, I think to you, this is sort of where you're going with that last comment, but in terms of a diverse student body being a sort of acceptable, a legally acceptable goal for an institution to pursue. I'm wondering if there's a lot of kind of misplaced um, doubt around that as a legally sort of legitimate goal, especially among more kind of senior ranks of leadership in colleges and universities. Am I right in understanding that it's still totally fine to have that as as an objective and that the court's ruling has not sort of um, uh, cast doubt on that? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because this is not only a question that's percolating just among higher education institutions generally, but it's playing out in this political landscape where we're not just dealing with the court of law, we're dealing with the court of public opinion. And you've got a lot of very intentional anti-DEI movements afoot, some of which are trying to take an adverse court opinion and stretch it beyond its breaking point. So to your point, what the court said around the, the diversity interests that were the foundation that uh, Harvard and UNC advanced was not that they were not good, laudable, or important goals. They said they were insufficiently compelling, um, in their words, not sufficiently concrete to be measurable to justify race status conscious decision-making. That is a very different question than to say, you can't advance those goals. In fact, there is a line in the court's opinion that says, institutions, you get to advance your mission. And in fact, this very conservative court said uh, the goals advanced by Harvard and UNC were in fact commendable and laudatory. So it's really important to recognize as important and impactful in certain ways that this court opinion is, it is not wiping out the DEI agenda. It is not eliminating the ability of institutions to advance those goals through thoughtful policy design and investment, including some of the areas that the Chief Justice um, expressly addressed. And I would argue, including a number of avenues that federal case law for years has either left untouched uh, by concerns of non-discrimination or given us some other practical guidance on policy design. Got it. Thanks, Art. That's very, very clarifying. Art, I'm also doing a time check. I'm noting we have maybe a couple of minutes left. I was wondering, just by way of closing, if there are maybe three key takeaways you'd like to leave our audience with, um, and or perhaps there are things that we didn't touch on in today's conversation that you think would be um, especially important for people to know. Anything like that come to mind? I, I think um, this is probably, in essence, a synthesis of what I've said in part during this conversation, um, I would never lose sight of the power of institutional mission as the driving force. When I enter conversations around um, the law or legal risk, 
people often say, well, that's your anchor. No, my anchor is mission. The law is a design parameter that I am considering is I am evaluating my question of how I need to advance my mission. And so um, I don't want to lose sight. It's easy to get caught up in the headlines or the details of a legal opinion. Critically important on design, but not the be all and end all of why you do what you do. And I would say in a corresponding fashion, maintaining that robust research and evaluation baseline that I alluded to earlier, including, by the way, expressly with racially disaggregated data. And there's nothing in the court's opinion that says you can't continue to collect and use that data, right? Um, that that becomes a really important foundation, not to in, not only just to inform strategic policy design, but as we begin to think about longer term strategies where maybe more advocacy is involved about developing new compelling interests or limiting some of the adverse impacts of this court opinion, which is mid to long term, not short term to be sure, it's gonna be important to have that research base to inform what we're doing. And we should be thinking about it in those terms as well. Yeah, thanks, Art. I think that's a really important point in terms of this uh, work in this area being grounded in mission, which will hopefully kind of spur more of those discussions between the enrollment leaders that are the kind of primary audience for today's discussion and, and their more kind of senior counterparts in the organization. So thanks very much for that um, closing note. And I will close by thanking you again, Art, for being so generous with your time and with your insights today. And hope we'll have a chance to uh, do this again sometime. Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we'll share tips for boosting enrollment in your graduate programs. Until then, thank you for your time.